This is the Rappaport Diamond Podcast with your host, Avi Kravitz. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. My name is Avi Kravitz. I'll be hosting um, the, the podcast today. And Happy New Year. It's um, 2020 and a new decade. So uh, le- let's look at it as a new beginning and something to, to look forward to. I, I think there's definitely much more optimism about the, the diamond market after a very difficult year um, in 2019. But it's great to be back in the studio. I have our team, uh, our regulars uh, with, with me today. And uh, we were going to talk about what we um, did for New Year's Eve and uh, going around our room and in preparation for the podcast, we, we realized that we were all in bed by latest 10 o'clock at night. So there isn't much to talk about there. And we, we thought we'd um, start off by just giving an insight of what New Year's resolutions we've, um, we've taken on for ourselves for, for the coming year. So um, welcome, John Costello, our publisher, um, to, to the podcast. How are you, John? I'm very good and a happy new year to everyone. Happy new year. And uh, what what have uh, what have you taken on for uh, for twenty twenty? Well, nothing uh, really outrageous. I think, as everyone at this time of year, uh, lose a few pounds and, and get ready for the uh, hopefully the, the warm spring weather and and, and sunny summer. Um, and also, I'm determined after ten years uh, living in Israel to really work on my Hebrew and uh, go up a few levels on it. So uh, that's my focus for twenty twenty. Um, I think those are good goals. Um, certainly, the losing of well, <laughs> you could you could lose it. You could shed a few pounds there, <laughs> John. I encourage you to do some exercise. Absolutely, but we could all after the holiday season. You're I talking think. to a man who goes up every morning with a military discipline, goes to the gym, looks very fit, and you it's are, true. It's and true. That, I, people I take, can't I see take, that from the because you know we have studio now TV. But really, I, I mean, it's really it's it's more a reflection of, I think my, I think, of my own. Uh, uh, my own lacking Sonia, than, than Sonia, you're getting that raise, Avi. <laughs> Emotion. No, and it's actually true. We always joke that, you know, John puts all of us to shame with his gym routine. So Yeah, we, ha- we had a WhatsApp group at one stage for our team where, uh, of updating each other on on the exercise that we're doing. And I think that it, it slowly, um, as, as more numbers um, left the group, landed up with just John. <laughs> so, so keep up the good work, John. You're looking good. Um, Sonia, um, our editor-in-chief, um, great to have you here. Thanks, Avi. Happy New Year. Beatslaha to John. It means good luck in Hebrew. Sonia, what are, you, what are your plans for this, uh, for the, or your goals for this year? Um, so on a personal level, to slow down. I want more time. I want to... Uh, to be more mindful and uh, less uh, rushing all the time. That's that's my um, personal goal. Um, it's you're a family in, goal, actually. Yeah, you're in the wrong job. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> thanks, thanks for breaking that news to me. When is your deadline for the for the next issue? <laughs> uh, I said personal, 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 personal yeah. and uh, and professionally, my goal is actually to deepen my learning and my knowledge of uh, the industry of gemology, of the history of jewelry, which I think is absolutely fascinating. So, um, so yeah, I want to to get to speak to more experts and learn more. That's, that's my oh, goal for 2020. Great. We, we, look, we look forward to reaping the benefits of, uh, of your, your pending knowledge. Thanks, Evie. <laughs> um, Joshua Friedman, our senior reporter for Diamonds.net and the magazine, is also with us. Welcome, Joshua. Hi, Avi. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. 
and uh, and um, you're a man of action. What 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 are your plans for for 2020? Um, well, I, I just um, I just moved house, so um, I haven't. Back on the topic of exercise, I haven't been running much recently because I've spent most of my spare time um, packing boxes. Um, and I also just moved from a mostly flat town into a mostly hilly town. So my resolution is to try and find somewhere where I can realistically run on a regular basis. Um, I, I have the same issue, actually. I, I, I also recently moved house and I, I moved to um, to an area that is on a hill and basically built with these massive staircases going up and up and up and up. And to get to the train um, each morning, for which I always think I'm late, but land up being five minutes early, I tend to run up those stairs. And it it, it certainly works the calf muscles and works my um, shows me how unfit I am. So I would share in both yours and John's um, goal for this year to... Uh, to get a bit more fit and uh, and I share in Sonia's um, goal to lead a more balanced and uh, a balanced life, I think, and, and to slow down and stop to breathe and uh, smell the flowers a bit, I think. But um, let's hope it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful new year for, for all of us and for our team and, uh, and for our listeners. I think there's a lot going on in the industry. There's always some anticipation um, come January that uh, there's a sense that there's a new start and uh, an anticipation for a renewal after the holiday season. And uh, and we spoke about last time about how important the holiday season is to, uh, to the industry. And uh, now we have some signals of information that have come through so far um, uh, that help us assess how the season has been. Um, Joshua, wh- what, do, what, do you, what have you seen so far in the news um, that has given us indication of how the, the, the season was for, for, for the diamond and jewellery industry? Mm. I mean, the, the crisis in the, in the diamond industry last year was obviously much of it came from internal problems about excess uh, supply, but really the, one of the major triggers was a disappointing holiday season, um, and that really set the year off for relatively bad performance. Um, it looks like this year has been okay without being a great season. Um, we've got a bit of initial data. Uh, Tiffany said that their sales um, were up about 1% to 3%, they estimated, for the, for the November and December holiday season. We also got some data from from Mastercard Spending Pulse, who provide retail data based on on their own their own information from Mastercard sales and and, and from surveys. Their jewelry sales were up about two percent for the holidays, um, which was weaker than total retail sales in the U.S. for the holidays, which are up about just over three percent. But one interesting fact that we saw was that e-commerce sales of jewelry have increased significantly. There's a lot of concern about whether people buy jewelry online. But the indications from this holiday seems to be seem seem to be that that area has in fact been growing. Mm. I mean, it's interesting because I think it's really a matter of context. If I remember correctly, the growth that um, we experienced this year, according to to um, Mastercard Spending Pulse, wasn't that much higher or, or wasn't last higher season than, last than they year reported sorry. for last season. But 2018 yeah. was considered a bad season, mm. but it was a, such a difficult year that I think there was a sense of relief that the industry did show some growth and and I think there was some movement as well in the diamond trading arena that mm. um, helped sort of ease some uh, nerves about the market. And it's also about how uh, how sales compare with what the expectations were. If expectations are very high, then mediocre sales lead to an oversupply and lead to um, right. 
uh, problems for suppliers. Right. right. I think that's the that's the key is the, the industry is learning to manage its expectations mm-hmm. or, or yes, just true. keep it low and your hopes high, I guess. Um, Sonia, were there any sort of standout trends at retail that you that you might have noticed over the holiday season or anything that stood out for you uh, from what we know of the of the season so far? Following on what Joshua just said about online sales, um, it looked like most of the jurors, designers had very good platforms to actually buy online as well. If I go to a lot of websites to look at descriptions and how they present the jewelry, and it seems like it's really improved in terms of, you know, they show it on models, they point out, you know, the Fairmine gold, the ethically sourced diamonds. So it seems like, you know, if you're a customer, you get much more information online. So I can see why it would be very attractive for customers that are, you know, short on time and want to actually get a nice present. And now with social media, you actually had beautiful Facebook things, Instagram. So it was very easy to, I think, to see something on Instagram, think that would be the perfect gift for myself or for someone I know. And to actually buy it this way, you go on a website where the information is comprehensive, where you have different views of the the jewelry. And I think the industry has really up its game in that, in that, in that area. I agree. I think the the presentation, and and particularly amongst influencers and and um, the 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 retail brands, really did improve this season. I mean, um, for example, I don't think I'm someone who would buy jewelry online. I like to actually go to the person. I like to touch and things. But when I see so many descriptions and the different pictures, I could see items I would completely trust to to order from reputable jurors and reputable um, designers. So I think that's really very interesting. And it also, it's a feeder to the store because I think there are, despite that growth of, of e-commerce that, um, that was recorded by MasterCard, there's this emphasis on omnichannel and using online platforms to sort of drive traffic to, um, to the store and vice versa, improving that retail experience, which we'll maybe touch on a bit as we look ahead for what's expected in the, in the coming year. John, the, the, the season wasn't um, all smooth sailing. You know, it seems that the, the economic environment and there's still deep concerns about uh, the economy in the United States and uh, across the, the globe. As we move past the, uh, the, the holiday season and start to look ahead, um, how, how do you assess the um, sort of macro environment or the market environment looking ahead towards 2020? I think the the one overriding uh, kind of statement is that the the United States economy is the the longest it has ever been in history without entering a recession, and recessions generally come in uh, in the U.S. historically uh, one out of every five years. So we're have a twenty percent chance going into every year that it will be a recession. Um, there was talk last year, this time last year, that the states was going to uh, enter a recession. Um, and there has been talk over the last few months, but it's it's confounding the experts. The United States economy is still performing very, very well. Like in key indicators such as unemployment is very, very low, and the stock market is still thriving. If you put that into the context of what's happening globally, Europe is still stagnant. It has never really uh, bounced back strongly from the financial crash in 2008. Uh, so 
Europe has experienced a bit of a wobble, the the situation in Hong Kong, the China-US trade war. There's a lot of external factors that are are signaling that the global economy isn't in such a healthy place. But, but still, the US economy just keeps on outperforming. And the consumer market there, especially for the diamond and jewelry industry, has is, is really been, you know, a key, I suppose, lifeline to the strength of the industry. You could imagine the difficult times we've had if the American market falls it would really uh, signal bad signs. So the key indicators for the U.S. economy over 2020 are still quite strong, but you have a lot of commentators saying that that could change quite quickly. So I think all eyes are watching it, but as I said, it seems to be going against every kind of economic theory that the U.S. economy is still performing very, very strongly. That could be President Trump. It could be many things. Who knows? So at the moment, 2020 is still looking pretty good. Yeah, I think people are, are hesitant to be over-optimistic, having been caught in the past about being too confident about the market. And we are definitely seeing some caution in forecasting. As we all know, it's, it's a dangerous um, game to play when you make these predictions for, for the market. It seems, uh, I would agree with you, that the American consumer environment is robust. But was the, the conference board who puts out an index that measures consumer confidence, who said that in December it was um, consumer confidence or consumer spending was fairly steady and, and strong, but um, they're not sure if it's sustainable or not, given the macroeconomic outlook and conditions. But but um, as I say, touch wood for, um, for now, let's enjoy the ride, I, I, <laughs> I guess. As we look ahead, because it's, it's, it's kind of human nature to make these sort of forecasts for the year ahead and we're at the beginning of a decade as well. So we can look short term and long term. Um, wh- what do you see as the main factor that would that might influence the market in 2020? Look, I think there's there's multiple factors that will feed into 2020. Economics is one of them. I think the omni-channel experience we saw, you know, from the MasterCard survey that online sales were really, really strong, where bricks and mortar in uh, retail sales were you know, positive, but not overwhelming. So it's how retailers can make the experience of the customer, whether they interface with them in a digital environment, then transition to go into their store and maybe pick up, touch and feel that jewelry, then go back home, make a decision and then buy through their mobile. So that seamless experience, no matter what channel the customer wants to engage with, they can make the purchase. And that's going to be key. And you actually have, if you look at James Allen, they actually have plans to open up, I think it's between 50 or 100 stores, kind of web stores. So they're going from bricks and clicks or, or sorry, uh, click retail to, to bricks and mortar, which they call them bricks and clicks. And I think sorry, was is, it, is that James Allen or Blue Nile? Blue Nile, right. oh, sorry, sorry, Blue Nile. So, Easily confused. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> but, but the trend is that, that you know, you have bricks and mortar retailers worrying about, you know, their future. You have pure play online people going, Jeepers, we should be uh, in bricks and mortar as well. So the the, the, the truth, I suppose, the sweet sw- spot is somewhere in between. It's finding that sweet spot is, is, is very, very difficult. And it, it takes energy, it takes time, planning and investment. But I think that's the big thing for 2020. It's how to match that online experience and, and, and marry it to your, your real world experience, whether that's pop-up shops, whether it's your, you know, corner 
street location that you've been there for 50 years, whatever it might be, whether it's uh, marrying your Instagram account with your, your, your retail shop. It's, there's so many different ways. And, and I think that's the big drive now. I think the figures we're seeing from MasterCard are really highlighting that as well. That has all sorts of impl- implications for the, for the midstream, for the trade as well. And, and that's, I think, where the greater challenge lies. It seems um, one of the key sort of characteristics of the market that I picked up on in 2019 was there was a sort of segmentation of demand. There there were certain categories of goods that were stronger than others and and a large quantity of diamonds that were not selling very very easily. And I think one of the factors that um, that fed into that is that retailers are able to be more efficient in their inventory management, particularly with that online story or that omni-channel experience where they don't necessarily have to hold the diamond in their store. They can sell it as effectively in the store using technology and tapping into the their supplier's inventory um, accordingly. So, so the consumer has access to much more information about the diamond and they're also more knowledgeable about um, about the diamond, better knowing the um, the nuances of uh, of what of the characteristics of a diamond, and therefore being able to be more picky, leaving the trade with more of those less desirable goods. And I think that uh, I think you're right. That is going to be a strong theme um, as as we move forward. And it ties into what um, what you were saying earlier, um, uh, Sonia, that, uh, that that the the retail experience is changing so rapidly. So on an um, anecdotal level, we uh, plan retail profile columns for the magazine. And we usually with a contributor, we'll write this column, Joyce Kopf. We uh, go through a list of retailers that we think are interesting. And we contacted a few. And I would say half a dozen or more of them told us they're refurbishing in 2020. <laughs> they're refurbishing their stores. They're really. refurbishing really. their stores. So yeah. we asked them, what are you doing? Just, you know because we can't see things or, you know, we can have artist impression. And most of them said, we're going to create more intimate space. We're going to make it our store more interactive and we want to have a more luxurious experience. And we're already talking of independent jewelers that were offering um, a good customer service, had good reviews, that's what we picked them, or had something interesting and a good story about the store. So we thought that, you know, on a small scale level, if this dozen, 10 stores are representative of what's happening, um, interactive, more personalized, more luxurious, more exclusive. Um, that could be what the store of the future, the jewelry store of the future will be. But for sure, we have um, a few interesting stores lined up for the magazine for 2021. <laughs> but I think this is signal- signaling a, a fundamental shift um, that the whole retail landscape and, and the area in which people sell is going to be radically transformed, I believe, over the next uh, year, two years, three years, and beyond. And and one of one of the one of the reasons is the uh, like the omni-channel trying to blend that um, interactive digital experience and try to bring that into your store. I think also the female self-purchaser is huge because, like it or not, like jewelry stores over the years have been built and salespeople have been trained, especially for the engagement ring market, to sell to men. And and that's changing. And, and the, the independent, uh, financially uh, independent uh, female purchaser is, is becoming uh, a growing and stronger niche the whole time. And I think how the industry reacts to that in terms of its sales tactics, its marketing, and its retail environment is huge. Because if you look back to marketing of yesteryear, it was always a man whipping out the engagement ring and going down on one knee. And that's 
just rapidly changing and it's becoming a thing, not 100% of the past, but but, but people are finding their own way. Uh, women are, are, are much more independent, taking the lead. And I think a significant proportion are actually buying their own engagement rings. So this is going to have really uh, strong repercussions, not only in the retail floor, but in marketing and training salespeople and the whole approach of the industry. You're absolutely right. Um, and the self, female self-purchasing market is growing rapidly. But, you know, men also want a more interesting experience when, when they go shopping. Well, let, let's say a more inviting experience. I think the the refurbishment of the industry is long overdue. Um, I think it's traditionally very, very intimidating to walk into a jewelry store and not so inviting. And people are looking for that fun, interesting and creative experience when they when they go shopping today. Oh, I found, you know, the other day I had lunch with uh, someone from the Diamond Bursa who was manufacturing high-end diamond jewellery. He's the third-generation diamond manufacturer. And I asked him, I said, you see more women buying these expensive earrings. We're talking about five to $10,000 pieces. And he said, this year, Sonia, I've never seen, this year meaning 2019, last year, um, I've never seen so many women coming into this place and actually buying this type of earrings. He said 2019 was really amazing for, for mm. women and same experience same thing that we were saying they also came to actually also choose their uh, engagement ring but he said more of the luxury the nice earrings the nice necklaces the nice bracelets you know they come they decide that's in a showroom in the Israel yes. Diamond Exchange yes but it's so, yeah. it's a beautiful uh, space he made it very elegant it's mm. extremely welcoming you have the chocolates and you have the nice lighting and himself is a very personable character and everyone in the office is then it's an extremely pleasant experience it's not intimidating he's from Antwerp he has this uh, Belgium charm to him what I mean is like if a retail store is going to go for this more intimate less you know more uh, personal friendly approach I think that's a win-win for everyone mm. yeah absolutely um uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the industry is not not as we said not not short of its challenges, and and we we we've mentioned the female self purchases, and that's been the, sort of the focus of um, of marketing over the last two years. The the holiday season saw a bit of a change with Forever Mark and um, and one or two other brands shifting their focus back to bridal or commitment jewelry. Obviously, you want to market to as broad a um, a, a customer base as, as possible. But there are segments of the market like the female such purchases and bridal that are, are key to the industry. Yeah, look, I think it's not a case of, of, of taking everything and, and ripping it up and throwing it out. I think it's really just trying to understand your customer and different parts of the world, uh, different parts of the US, depending on whether you're in the coast, whether you're south, the middle, it's going to be different. It really reflects on what your customers want. The one thing, the old cycles, the old way things used to work, they're being broken. And I think one thing you hit the nail on the head when you when you talked about people marketing commitment rings. So they're going over and beyond just the engagement ring. And we had, we're in the coming towards the end of the engagement season, which goes from November through to Valentine's Day. So you have a, a lot of people, we had the, the cover story of the magazine, uh, an issue two ago saying, nowadays you can't just rely on, on Christmas, where a lot of retailers, they would struggle throughout the year and, and a good Christmas would see them over the line and that would be the big thing. That's really changing. So they're, they're trying to look at different ways to capture the audience. Like the song that I grew up with, at any rate, says it should be Christmas or I wish it could be Christmas every day. And 
it can be because you should have that mentality and mindset that you're you're trying to come up with different promotions, trying to interact with your audience, holding special nights or or whatever, and trying to attract consumers and. One of the reasons why the U.S. economy is is so good now, you can can look under the bonnet and look at the the, the amount of debt that people have and the, and the country has it at all and it might scare. But America is a consumer market. Consumers like spending. I I think jewelers who are tapping into their audience, their customer base, and understanding this, building the right environment for them, and and just going over and beyond of the normal tradition is just being pulled apart and broken now. And uh, we have a new generation of. Uh, Gen Z, we have the millennials, and there's another generation coming behind them, and they're they're just not looking to their parents as as we didn't look to our parents. You know what mm. I mean? And well, they, they're not looking to um to to the uh, the structure, the same structures that we that we would, and and we were speak, speaking earlier about um the, that one of the challenges of the of the industry in 2020 is dealing with that erosion of the um, diamond engagement ring or the idea of um of giving a diamond for an engagement ring. The market is facing competition from other areas. I think if if you're looking over what the decade will bring, who knows in terms of economics goes up, they go down, trends will change. But the the next decade is going to be a battle for the symbol of engagement, the symbol of love, the symbol of marriage to be a natural diamond. And that that battle has yet to be won, and I think the the status of the diamond engagement ring has been undermined over the last number of years. You have from synthetics, you have people using uh, gemstones, maybe not having a ring at all. Um, that 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 is going to require a big push from the likes of the beers, people like Al Rosa, the uh, the Diamond Producers Association. Uh, everyone involved is really going to have to make sure that that status of the diamond ring diamond equals love equals commitment needs to be maintained and the next decade that's not going to be an easy battle to win and people shouldn't be taking it for granted that you know as we're sitting around here hopefully in 10 years time the natural diamond may not have weathered this decade well um, for it to weather it well, it, it will take the industry to push and to drive and to spend money and to market something which outside the big guns of the beers, we haven't been very good at. I think the DPA has made inroads, um, but I think it, it needs more of a, of a push. And I think Martin Rappaport has spoken about it. Other people have spoken about it, the, the need for a big marketing budget, a big marketing bounty to go out there and, and to keep um Keep that status of of, of the diamond, uh, the natural diamond as a symbol, the unique symbol of love and commitment, endurance. I think that's going to be very interesting to see how that pans out over the next ten years. Yeah, I would agree, and uh, well said. The key is f- for the industry not to take it, take that segment of the market for granted, which I think we have in the, in the last few years. I also think we we need to be optimistic. There is an opportunity in that consumers are returning to tradition and in the same way that they still look for that personal service from a retailer. I think society goes in cycles and the idea of giving a diamond ring, a natural diamond ring is so entrenched that we have a strong basis from which to work. 
Yeah, I totally agree, Avi. And, and that's one thing, you know, when people talk to me about lab-grown diamonds or synthetic diamonds or whatever we want to call them, I just don't believe over the medium to short term they will really threaten the natural diamond industry because I just think this whole thing, even of millennials looking for real experience, real, you know, genuine things, why would they be so much uh, chasing real things and then go for a synthetic diamond? I just don't see that happening. So I, I do believe we're in a very strong position, but a lot of times um, that the industry, because of the nature of the industry is a fragmented, small, family-run business type of uh, industry. And they've kind of looked to the beers and larger organizations to provide their marketing. Companies now and corner stores and mom-and-pop stores or, or whatever, they can do so much to market themselves through Instagram, through social media, through even events in their store, in-store events. And they have a part to play in, in keeping that special relationship between loving couples or loving relationships and the, and the natural diamond and I think that needs to be reinforced by bigger spend by the bigger companies but uh, you know I've no doubt in 10 years time we, we will still have the the natural diamond engagement ring but we shouldn't take it for granted and we do as an industry need to focus on that and make sure we, we don't lose that segment of the market because it's incredibly important to our industry and um, to companies like Rappaport and throughout the, the industry that that maintains a uh, the natural diamond retains its symbol as the um, symbol of love. One of the um, w- one of the other key trends I think that that we picked up in our, our news coverage, Joshua, um, in the last year, was that lab-grown diamonds, synthetic diamonds, are hustling their way their their position in the market. And we've seen um, more of the natural diamond industry sort of dipping their toe in that market. Yeah. Um, can you give us an update on what you're seeing in, in that space? Well, um, a lot of major players in the natural diamond market, starting, of course, with the beers, are already you know, exploring or already, already investing in, um, in the lab-grown market. One key thing is um, any company looks at, looks at profitability and profit margins have been really lacking in the diamond industry recently. If you're a, if you're a cutter, a manufacturer, and you can get a much better margin if you work with lab-grown, at least that's the, that's the perception, at least in the short term. I think the industry at the moment is, um, is working to try and differentiate between lab-grown and, uh, and natural. Whether that will benefit from natural diamond companies um, going into lab-grown themselves, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. They're, they're, they're generally keeping it very, very separate. They, the beers are told them they have to keep them separate if they want to continue to get the beer supply. But they're operating under separate companies with separate separate supply chains. In the next few years, we'll, we'll be a bit clearer about how that works out. Mm. De Beers' response to site holders um, going into synthetics obviously wasn't to say that you can't do so because Correct. they themselves are, yes. are, are yes. have their, their lightbox brand, but it was to present a set of principles and guidelines on how they should approach the lab-grown market. Correct, correct. Making sure that they um, they're ensuring complete segregation, that they're they're mm. operating under separate legal entities. What they didn't say, which was interesting, was the beers aren't stopping uh, their clients from marketing diamonds for for bridal for for engagement rings. So if you look at how the beers are marketing lab grown, it's very much as it's it's, it's solely as um, as a fashion jewelry item, and they very much frown upon the practice of trying to get lab grown to replace the natural diamond engagement ring. Mm. The beers are saying our clients are free to take whatever business decision they decide, which you yeah. would expect in a in which, a free market. Which you would expect, <laughs> that, but um, um, but but, uh, but but they at the same time presenting provide making a certain provisos 
um, that, mm-hmm. uh, on which their rough supply would uh, would depend. I would mm-hmm. I, I would imagine. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think that the 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 bigger question maybe about the future of of rough supply is is actually in in how De Beers currently supplies its rough to the market. It's actually something that's come up with a lot of criticism recently. Is diamond companies that buy from De Beers they declare at the beginning of a a year that what allocation of diamonds that that they want. If they don't, then buy what they say they will. They risk losing their supply for the following year. That's the and demonstrated that's what, demand. What they call demonstrated right. demand, and right. um, and that um, the current contract is actually coming to an end this year, so that there's a lot of questions that site holders are asking about whether that system will continue, and many are suggesting that the beers are going to move away from the from solely um, focusing on that system of demonstrated demand, and and um, and introduce other ways in which they allocate rough. The danger of this demonstrated demand system is that um, is that site holders buy for the sake of ensuring future supply rather than buying what they can make a profit on. And we've seen right. a whole range of crises that have come from this or are related to this with um, with banks pulling out of the industry because because manufacturers are buying unprofitable rough. Uh, and uh, th- there's a potential for that to, to change significantly. This is the final year of the current De Beers contract. Right. Um, so 2021 will be a new contract. Sometime this year, probably the middle of this year, we will hopefully be enlightened as to how the beers will proceed next year. Well, as you mentioned, the, the aspect to it and one of the themes of the market in 2019 was dealing with that oversupply of um, of goods, which really stemmed from the rough market that manufacturers mm-hmm. and site holders um, felt compelled to buy volumes of rough, which there wasn't the demand in yes. the, on the polished side. Um, and... Uh, I think that's a very positive development for the midstream, for manufacturers. Um, if they can be more selective in the rough that they're buying, it would reduce the, the risk that they take on in terms of holding so much inventory. And I think ultimately it would ease the, their burden, which is, which is really sort of where the bottleneck in the industry is um, at the moment. Mm. They, don't have the, they don't have the profitability, they don't have the liquidity to invest in their um, in their processes to make them more efficient, and it affects the whole market. And mm-hmm. as we saw last year, that um, polished prices essentially softened as a result of mm-hmm. that bottleneck. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a that's a theme that we're going to see um, over the next decade. And and we're already seeing some some of the mining companies enabling sort of a more rough buying on demand. Um, right. Lucara, obviously, um, right. with their Clara system yeah. comes to mind. And I think there are more mining companies that are that are looking at it. It will be very interesting to see what yeah. uh, what De Beers does in that regard and in the if, new contract. If, if you step back and consider how the rough buying market or the, just the diamond industry in general works, it's quite insane. You turn up 10 times a year to a De Beers sale. They hand you these, what used to be black and yellow boxes, and I think they they're now black boxes, and you open them and you inspect them and you decide which ones to buy. But as, as a general rule, you have a box and you take it or leave it. They actually broke with that this year. I believe for the first time ever, they allowed you to take half of a box. Yeah, there, there may have to, been some similar right, flexibility there was, there was some in the flexibility, past. Yes. But, uh, but, but, um, as, a rule, but as a rule, it's, take, it's, yeah. it's pretty much take it or leave it. And, and, and this, this gave a lot more freedom to, obviously, to buyers. But I, I'm not sure it's how you design a diamond industry from scratch. Whereas what uh, <laughs> that, that what, would be an interesting right. um, exercise, yes. and, and I think an interesting story maybe um, that we can, uh, yeah. you know, or, or question that we can ask the trade. You know, if, if you had to find the first diamond today, yeah. how would you, you build the industry uh, yeah. with, with the promise of 
of right. a century of supply. Yeah. How would you build this um, mm. this industry? So, so it's, um, yeah. and as you say, like Lucara have been uh, offering this program where where you can get the rough you need depending on your polished demand. Your polished demand, um, and that's you know, it's based on technology. As I think, Ava, you mentioned in your recent Rappaport research report, that's something we're. We should see more. Yeah. One thing is for sure is that diamonds and beautiful jewelry continue to inspire creativity and interest across all segments of society. And uh, of course, it's award season now. We just had the, the Golden Globes. Uh, which uh, maybe drew some headlines more for Ricky Gervais's opening monologue than anything else. But we certainly took note of, of some of the jewelry and, and fashion trends that were on the red carpet. Sonia, as our resident um, non-rough uh, and <laughs> non-rough focused and uh, or, or retail focused, we, we tend to get boggled down in the trade stuff. But um, what, what did you see on the red carpet on the Golden Globes? I woke up, I think, at 4 a.m. on, uh, it would have been Monday morning. And I started checking Instagram to know what was happening at the Golden Globes. And I thought, I wish I could spend this evening with the DPA team because they must be celebrating and having the best time. It was one white diamond, beautiful piece of jewelry after one dazzling white diamond piece of jewelry. It was really quite phenomenal. Harry Winston, Bulgari. Tiffany. My personal favorite was uh, Billy Porter in his white outfit, very camp, very glamorous, but with an amazing, amazing Tiffany white diamond pendant. There were beautiful pieces by Bulgari, blue sapphire, emerald mixed with diamond all the time. It was extremely glamorous. And it was, at first I thought it's a bit conservative, actually. It was very old Hollywood glamour. So they didn't really go for edgy young designers, most of them. You didn't see, they all went for the classical dresses, big, lot of volume, and a lot, a lot, a lot of diamonds. And I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Beyonce arrived with, is it 250 carats earrings? It was something, only only Beyonce could, you know, <laughs> could arrive. Yeah, over 200 and, uh, 250 carats of diamonds. It was uh, designed by Lauren Schwartz. And I'm going to repeat it again, just because it was white diamonds. <laughs> and it was really, it, I mean, it's a piece of art, really. And she looked absolutely, absolutely glamorous and glowing as ever. But it was something, and think a night for the diamond industry to celebrate. And Sonia, you, you mentioned the DPA there must be uh, rubbing their hands with glee. Was it a purely natural diamond affair? Or did we see any synthetic uh, brands on, on the red carpet? Listen, if you spotted synthetic, tell me, because I really went through so many accounts on Instagram and I, I couldn't see anything synthetic, lab-grown diamond. I didn't see anyone wearing a designer I really like who works only with um, lab-grown gemstones and diamonds, Annabella Chan. She explains why she only works with um, lab-grown saying is because when she was on her honeymoon, she was in, she saw the condition of some miners, I think, in Sri Lanka. So that's how she started to work only with lab-grown gemstones. She usually supplies stunning jewelry to celebrities, but I didn't see anything by her during the Golden Globes. So she would have been, I think, the only person that could have maybe supplied diamonds. It was only natural. It was vintage Harry Winston, vintage Cartier. Bulgari is always a big player, Pomelato. And Tiffany had a very good night, I think, as well. Right. Also, they, and um, Reese Witherspoon had this amazing 
white diamond earrings. <laughs> I can't get over it. It was actually at the beginning I thought, am I going to, you know. <laughs> Maybe you're biased towards white, white diamonds. <laughs> I, I promise. I spent a lot of time checking, but even in mixed with beautiful sapphires and emeralds, it was still, um, I think the only exception was my favorite actress, Nicole Kidman, who wore a vintage Omega watch. She's the brand ambassador for Omega. So that's one thing. And she uh, wore earrings, gold earrings by this Indian designer, Anut Singh, who uh, is also a bit of a favorite of mine. So I think that was very nice. That was a nice exception to the trend. And she obviously looked fantastic. Yeah, it, it does seem that there was a bold sort of statements and kind of a classic look that came off the red carpet. And we, we look forward to the Oscars, I guess, is, is coming up as well. I, I, I don't more... know the personalities of the different <laughs> award shows, but I think that tends to be more sort of formal. Yeah, which is actually quite interesting. They always say the Golden Globes, people are a bit more adventurous. So if they were that conservative for the Golden Globes, mm. I'm waiting to see what's going to be for the Academy Awards. I think people do take note of what the celebrities are, are wearing and... It does influence, certainly, I think we would see it on social media and having sort of replica type of designs that uh, that make it to the street eventually. I think that's generally why these bigger brands get involved in presenting their, their stones and their pieces on the carpet. If there's a trend that makes it to the street, it will be the life-saving of the, the industry. Gwyneth Paltrow wore not one, but two necklaces by Bulgari. In, I'm not going to say it again, but you, you <laughs> figure out. Yeah. <laughs> um, layered, which usually you say, you know, the trend is to layer smaller, th- thinner um, jewelry, but she actually went for big and layered. So that was, that was quite spectacular. And another theme was that besides Billy Porter, there were a few men wearing sort of white diamond <laughs> um, br- uh, br- uh, br- brooches. A lot of pins, yeah, um, a Cartier vintage. So, um, and uh, So we look forward to seeing John and Joshua um, <laughs> with theirs tomorrow at work. After I Google uh, and see who Billy Porter actually is, <laughs> I might take some fashion cues from them. <laughs> It'll be interesting if you do take those fashion cues from Billy Porter, um, John. Our office will never be the same. <laughs> you, I think we'll need bro- uh, wider doors and yeah, well, more light. Well, you might have to lose a few pounds there. Huh? <laughs> but on that note, um, thanks, uh, thanks for an interesting discussion, guys. And uh, we look forward to the next podcast. We look forward to the coming year. There's a lot going on both um, at Rapport and as the industry um, gets into its groove again. And um, we look forward to uh, to reporting on 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 what's what's happening out there. Um, John, thanks very much for for your your participation. Thank you, Avi. And uh, Joshua, thanks very much to you. Thank you, Avi. And of course, Sonia. Thanks, Avi. Thanks, the team. Thanks, everyone. Have a great 2020. <laughs> <laughs>